You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. Hidden History is an audio project of Bulletin Technologies, LLC. To find out how you can fly for a fraction of the cost of commercial, visit bulletinflights.com. I'm very pleased to announce that Hidden History has a new home. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every Wednesday, head on over to hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. On December 2nd, 1942, the world's first self-sustaining nuclear reaction took place beneath the bleachers of the University of Chicago's football stadium, Stagg Field. The reactor was called Chicago Pile 1, known by its abbreviation, CP1. CP1 was described by its creator, Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, as, quote, a crude pile of black bricks and wooden timbers. The black bricks were 45,000 blocks of solid graphite. It was powered by almost five and a half tons of metallic uranium and 45 tons of uranium oxide. Overall, it weighed 360 tons. It produced half a watt of power. In these early experiments with atomic power, nuclear reactors were exceedingly dangerous, and in 1942, a man named Norman Hilberry would preside over the first-ever atomic emergency protocols. If the Chicago pile reached supercriticality, he had to shut it down, using only a fire axe. This is Hidden History. You're listening to Episode 8, Scram. Atomic Energy Commission lifts the veil of secrecy that shrouds its vital defense secrets to reveal some aspects of the vast research program that is spelling out new progress in agriculture, medicine, and industry. Key men in this program are the technicians carrying out the thousands of painstaking experiments that are the foundation of scientific advances. Amazing technical gadgets undreamt of just a decade ago make possible the study of atomically hot materials. Remote control tools of fantastic complexity and precision avert the menace of death-dealing invisible radiation. More than three feet of shielding isolates these researchers from their experiment. Yet they control every step as closely as if it were in the same room, the hot cave as it's called here. Here they unseal a sample container direct from the atomic pile using mechanical slave hands and a remote control power saw. Artificially hot specimens of industrial metals are being analyzed to gain vital knowledge of the effects of radiation, facts invaluable, for example, in the construction of an atomic submarine or power plant. The slave manipulator places the specimens into a standard hardness tester, a simple job under ordinary conditions, but in dealing with radioactivity requiring thousands of dollars worth of special gear. Dial readings measure the metal's loss of strength after radiation exposure. And a microscopic view of the specimen, an amazing optical achievement, but a commonplace AEC research tool. Its scientific wizardry of vital importance to our future, carried on behind an ever-alert barrier of defense against any foe, constantly on guard with the vigilance that is the price of liberty. 
That was a Universal Pictures newsreel titled Atoms for Peace Use Unveiled, and it comes from that rosy post-war period when the possibilities of atomic energy seemed endless, and the United States' Atoms for Peace program, launched by President Eisenhower, would see the American Machine and Foundry Company, mainly known for their manufacturing of bowling equipment, oversee the construction of the first nuclear reactors in Pakistan, Israel, and Iran. But the international expansion of Atoms for Peace came to fruition in the late 50s and early 60s, and the American nuclear program goes back much further. The start of the program can be pinned to October 21st, 1939, with initial research being conducted under the Bureau of Standards. In 1942, it was transferred to the control of the Army and renamed the Manhattan Project. In June of that year, the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which would later conduct infamous human experiments on members of the civilian public service from 1943 to 1946, selected a 1,025-acre site outside of Chicago, which would later become Argonne National Laboratory for the construction of Enrico Fermi's CP1 reactor. But as facilities construction fell further and further behind schedule, Fermi proposed a new location, under the western bleachers of Stag Field. The massive space went mostly unused, but most importantly, it wasn't heated. So when it was cold in Chicago, it was cold under Stag Field. Naturally, there were safety concerns about building the world's first nuclear reactor in one of America's most populated cities, but Fermi had a solution. In terms of nuclear engineering, there are two types of neutrons, prompt and delayed. Prompt neutrons are created practically immediately after fission. The Department of Energy defines a prompt neutron as one that's emitted within 10 to the negative 13th seconds after the initial fission event. On the other hand are delayed neutrons, which can be emitted anywhere from milliseconds to minutes later, and they're born from a fission product that's undergone beta decay. The timing of these delayed neutrons could be used as a safety precaution. The delay between the creation of prompt and delayed neutrons meant that if the scientists observed an abrupt spike in the level of prompt neutrons, they would have a few minutes before the delayed neutrons would spike and cause what's known as a divergent chain reaction, or criticality event. In that window, massive amounts of negative reactivity, known as neutron absorbers or neutron poisons, would be introduced into the reactor halting the reaction in its tracks. The site was approved, and the University of Chicago's metallurgical lab immediately began construction on the hulking piece of equipment. As 1942 neared its end, CP1 was completed, and with a supply of pure metallic uranium from the University of Iowa's Ames project, which would later become Ames National Laboratory, Preparations were made for the world's first man-made self-sustaining nuclear reaction. Part of the prep work involved creating safety mechanisms in the form of what's called a control rod, which, in 1942, took the form of a thin sheet of cadmium, a neutron absorber, nailed to a piece of wood. The rods were attached to what's called the scram line, a piece of hemp rope that would be cut in an emergency 
and cause the rod to fall into the pile and stop the reaction. The man in charge of the scram line on December 2, 1942, was Norman Hilberry. He was the first human iteration of the now-automated SCRAM safety protocol. SCRAM is an acronym. It stands for Safety Control Rod Axeman. In a piece of correspondence from 1981, Hilberry described his role in the CP1 test. When I showed up on the balcony on that December 2nd, 1942 afternoon, I was ushered to the balcony rail, handed a well-sharpened fireman's axe, and told, if the safety rods fail to operate, cut that manila rope. The safety rods, needless to say, worked. The rope was not cut. I don't believe I have ever felt quite as foolish as I did then. Thankfully for Hilberry, scram protocols were never initiated on Chicago Pile 1, but other reactors wouldn't be so lucky. For many years, there has been a vigorous debate in this country about the safety of the nation's 72 nuclear energy power plants. That debate is likely to be intensified because of what happened early this morning at a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. Max? Frank, it was an accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant, which is located on an island in the Susquehanna River, 10 miles from Harrisburg. A cooling pump broke down, and the plant did just what it was supposed to do, shut itself off, but not before some radioactivity had escaped. We have two reports. First, Bettina Gregory. It happened at the number two generator about four o'clock this morning. Something caused the secondary cooling system to fail. It shut off the reactor, but heat and pressure built up, and some radioactive steam escaped into the building housing the reactor, and eventually out into the plant and the air. William Wittick lives across the river. I heard a uh, very loud noise uh, that sounded like uh, a uh, huge release of uh, steam. And uh, I looked out the window. It was, it was dark, but you could see from the lights over there that there was a geyser of steam that was uh, raising up in the air. Mike Janowski was working inside. Did you see anything? Didn't hear anything. All you hear is the turbine trip, and down she comes, and they announce it, and away you go. The March 28, 1979 nuclear accident at Three Mile Island marks the turning point in American perception towards nuclear power. For the decades before the accident, it was seen as a clean, safe, and futuristic alternative to oil, gas, and coal. In a single day, that all changed. Make no mistake. Nuclear power is an extremely safe generation method, but in the course of developing our modern nuclear program, it was dangerous in a very different way, which is why we need to talk about a little town called Hanford, Washington. Hanford was a small farming community in south-central Washington. It was established in 1907, and by the 20s, high crop demand had made Hanford a booming little town. It lived on as usual until March 9, 1943, less than three months after the test of CP-1, when the federal government served residents a 30-day eviction notice. Almost every building in town would be leveled to make room for the 586-square-mile Hanford site, a facility the size of Rhode Island that would shape the future of America's nuclear program. When the Manhattan Project was placed under the control of the Army Corps of Engineers in 1942, 
Brigadier General Leslie Groves, who was also overseeing the construction of the Pentagon, was tasked with producing the extremely rare element plutonium on an industrial scale. Groves contracted the construction and engineering work to DuPont, and soon the 1,500 residents that had been evicted from the towns of Hanford and White Bluffs were replaced by scores of laborers employed by Hanford Engineer Works, peaking at 44,900 in the summer of 1944. These legions of construction workers were lured to the Hanford site with promises of attractive pay for working on an unspecified war project. By the end of World War II, that unspecified project had taken the form of over 550 different buildings, including the B, D, and F reactors, and three 820-foot-long plutonium processing plants, known as canyons. But before the famous experimental B reactor would go live in September 1944, indeed, before it could even be designed, engineers needed testing data from the world's second man-made self-sustained reaction, which happened in the X-10 graphite reactor on November 4, 1943, at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. X-10's data allowed the Hanford B reactor to be the world's first industrial-scale nuclear reactor, and after its completion, it was put to producing plutonium-239 for use in atomic weapons. The B reactor would be responsible for producing a portion of the fissile material used in the Trinity tests, as well as the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. After the war's end, General Electric would assume control of the Hanford site, and by 1963, it would be home to nine operating nuclear reactors, five processing plants, and over 900 other structures. Over the four-decade lifespan of the site, it would produce 57 tons of plutonium, arming a majority of the 60,000 weapons in the American nuclear arsenal. But when I said a bit ago that early nuclear power was dangerous in a different way, what did I mean? Well, for those nine nuclear reactors at Hanford, every single one was cooled with water from the Columbia River. Once the water passed through the reactors, it sat in holding bases for just a few hours and then was released back into the current. Every day from 1944 to 1971, several trillion becquerels of radioactivity were released back into the Columbia River. Radioactivity has been found up to 200 miles downstream, as far away as the coasts of Washington and Oregon. The radioactive plutonium dust from the processing that took place in Hanford's Canyon plants was carried by the wind throughout southeastern Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and parts of Canada, contaminating the food and drink of those unknown people downwind. The poison in the Columbia River contaminated the fish, which local Native American communities relied on heavily for their diets. The B reactor was decommissioned in February 1968, and the last one, the N reactor, in January 1987. And what did Hanford leave in its wake? 53 million gallons of highly radioactive waste, 
25 million cubic feet of solid radioactive waste and 200 square miles of contaminated ground and groundwater. Hanford is the most contaminated nuclear site in the United States. It alone makes up 60% of the high-level radioactive waste managed by the Department of Energy. It contains almost a tenth of all nuclear waste in the country. On March 28, 1979, at 4 in the morning, when the Three Mile Island Generating Station initiated automated scram protocols to prevent a criticality event, effectively, when nuclear power lost its shine in the United States, it would be another seven years before 19,000 pages of damning documentation on the Hanford site would be declassified, three months before the Chernobyl disaster. To learn more about the dramatic rise and fall of the nuclear power industry, I'd recommend picking up a copy of James Mahaffey's 2014 book, Atomic Accidents, A History of Nuclear Meltdowns and Disasters from the Ozark Mountains to Fukushima. So to end today's episode, I want to play you a clip from a radio station in Fort Wayne, Indiana, from February 20th, 1971, when human error in the emergency broadcast system led an entire city to believe that atoms for peace were about to be atoms for war. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. 45 before 10, doesn't somebody want to be wanted? The Partridge family. This station has interrupted its regular program at the request of the United States government to participate in the emergency broadcast system serving the Fort Wayne area. During this period, many radio stations will remain on the air broadcasting news and official information for areas assigned to them. This station will remain on the air and will serve the Fort Wayne area. If you are not located in the Fort Wayne area, you should now tune your radio to other stations until you hear one which is broadcasting news and information for your area. You are listening to the emergency broadcast system serving the Fort Wayne area. Studio awaiting further information. WOWO received this emergency announcement just moments ago. We have to verify, we did verify, with a special message in code, and this uh, is an emergency action directed by the emergency network and directed by the president. You've heard Bob Chase tell you that you are to tune to the emergency station in your area that is remaining on the air. WOWO will remain on the air here in the Fort Wayne area uh, to broadcast any emergency information that is coming in. At this point, at the microphone, I know of nothing to cause this. We are waiting from Stuart Dan in the WOWO newsroom to bring us some information from any of our wire services. We have been asked to broadcast this emergency information immediately. We will bring you other emergency information uh, the moment we receive it. And at this time, I would personally like to urge all members of the WOWO news staff, uh, any in the area and listening, to report to us immediately. Uh, we do not know the cause of this emergency 
notification, but we ask you to stay tuned. This is Bob Seavers. I'm checking the wires. I'll be with you the moment we have further information. We will cease all commercial messages at this time also. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we ask you, please, please do not call us to ask what is the matter. We are endeavoring to find out ourselves. We have received this official emergency action notification with the proper identification indicating a national emergency. We know nothing now. We are watching our wires. You probably will find that your own radio stations, unless they are so authorized, will be off the air. This includes the television stations. Now, please, if you are in your area and your radio station is still on, the chances are, are the emergency station for your area. WOWO is now broadcasting to its own immediate area, possibly with reduced power if you're getting our signal weaker. We are to be the information service for this area. This is Bob Sievers. I know of nothing yet. We received this emergency message about 10 minutes ago. We are continually watching our wire. I urge all WOWO newsmen to report to our station immediately to help us. And please do not call us to ask what is the matter. We do not know. We have received the official notification. We invite you to stay tuned to this station, WOWO, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for information as it is received, we hope, momentarily. Now, this information is just in. This information is just in from the AP Wire, Attention News Directors, and all bureaus regarding the emergency broadcast message which was sent by the Air Force on this wire about 9.30 this morning, Eastern Standard Time, and I am quoting direct, being completely honest. It says, AT&T advises the AP that the Air Force at Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado put the wrong message on tape. Put the wrong taped message. The normal tape explains the message is merely a test. This is the one that we always receive at this time on Saturday morning. It says you will be further advised when additional information is available. And so, <laughs> if you think this hasn't been something here at the studio, the Air Force evidently then at Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado put the wrong message tape on the wire. This concludes operations under the emergency broadcast system. All broadcast stations may now resume normal broadcast operations.